Church Life Today is brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union and our listeners. What does it take to create a world? Well, when I put it like that, you might think it requires you to be God. So let's ask our question another way. What about a literary world, but nevertheless, a complete world with a comprehensive vision, an atmosphere, and a history, and languages, customs, and traditions? We might think few people are capable of creating such things, and we are definitely right in thinking that. Yet, there are some authors, some artists, who manage such a feat, and one such figure who stands perhaps above just about any other in the powers and fruits of creation is J.R.R. Tolkien, creator of The Lord of the Rings. So let's ask our question again. What did it take for Tolkien to create Middle-earth? That is where today's episode comes in. Many might think that Tolkien was a standalone genius to whom ideas and images came complete unto themselves and without precedent. We might think his work is something like pure originality in that he conjures things up out of nothing, as if he were quite a bit like God who is indeed an uncreated creator. Or we might think that any influences Tolkien had, however dim those influences might be, that all of them are located in the past, which accorded more with his special area of scholarly expertise. But today, we will consider the modern influences on Tolkien's creative imagination. And in so doing, we will think about what a creative imagination is and how a Catholic, like Tolkien, exercises his imagination. To guide us on our quest, Dr. Holly Ordway joins us today. Dr. Ordway is the Cardinal Francis George Fellow of Faith and Culture at the Word on Fire Institute, whose recently published book is Tolkien's Modern Reading, Middle Earth Beyond the Middle Ages. I'm Leonard DiLorenzo. This is Church Life Today, a production of the McGrath Institute for Church Life and the Spoke Street Media Network. I'm glad you're here. Holly, welcome to the show. Pleasure to be on. Holly, your book on Tolkien's modern reading challenges what I think has become a universal opinion of Tolkien relative to, I don't know, what kind of thinker he was, what he valued, what he didn't, what he read, what he didn't, and maybe most of all, what influenced his imagination, if anything at all, right? Could you start by framing for us what this commonplace view of Tolkien is, even probably amongst scholars, and how your research maybe unsettles that view? Well, there is a a very widespread view that Tolkien was simply stuck in the past, that he, you know, he read nothing past Chaucer, that he was only a medievalist, that he was dismissive of modern literature, that he was nostalgic and and backward looking. And this is a stereotype, but it's one that is surprisingly enduring and widespread. In my conversations over the last decade, I found that most people who are just fans of Tolkien, most readers are are thinking, oh yeah, he he was a yeah you know past oriented. He was he was definitely only interested in that, and they might think that's fine. They might think it's great, but that's what they think. 
within Tolkien scholarship, there have been a number of critics who over the years have noticed that he didn't quite fit that stereotype, but these tended to be kind of voices in the wilderness, you know, noticing one thing here, one thing there. So there's been really no no overhaul of this of this view of Tolkien as being basically oriented towards the past and interested in only the past. But this is actually kind of a, a, a paradox if you think about his great work, The Lord of the Rings, because Lord of the Rings is fantastically popular across generations now, across language boundaries, across cultural boundaries. It speaks profoundly to all of the issues of the 20th century and indeed of the 21st century. So when I, I, I've been reading Tolkien and, and writing about him and thinking about him seriously for, for about 30 years. And when I, I just eventually got to the point about 10 years ago, where I, I sort of thought to myself, this is very strange. If Tolkien really is so oriented towards the past, as I, as I thought he was, how is it that this book is so profoundly engaging for modern issues? Mm-hmm. And that started me thinking, well, I wonder, you know, how, how much did he interact with modern literature? I knew he had read some modern fantasy, you know, but so I said, well, maybe I'll start there. Maybe I'll just see, did he read other fantasy authors? Well, that was 10 years ago. <laughs> and honestly, when I started, it perhaps is a good thing I didn't know what I was getting myself into, or I wouldn't have dared to finish because I discovered that I was just mistaken, that he isn't oriented only to the past. He's like a bridge. He has one foot firmly planted in the past because he was a, he was a medievalist, mm-hmm. a profoundly gifted medievalist and deeply knowledgeable, interested in the past. Absolutely. There's a lot of great scholarship that shows just how important his medieval work was. But then there's the other part of the bridge because he translates from the past to the present. And you can't be a translator unless you speak both languages, right? Right. And that's what I discovered, that he he actually did read widely and deeply in a huge range of, of modern stories and poems and drama. He was interested in it. He had thoughts about it. He certainly didn't like all of it, but he took it seriously. And by the time I was done you know, with this book, with what became Tolkien's Modern Reading, I realized that my picture of Tolkien had sort of become much more three-dimensional. I mean, I already thought of him very highly to begin with. Um, He's a genius writer and so gifted in bringing medieval themes and imagery to life. And now I saw that he was drawing from this entire other realm and blending it and transforming it. And so in the end, Tolkien's modern reading started out as an exploration of his sources but became almost a biography of his creative imagination. Yes, yes. Yeah, that's that's really the uh, the impression I was gaining from your book very early on. I think you set it up that way that yes, this is going to be a study in Tolkien's modern reading, what he read and what potential influence it had on him, how it shaped his imagination. But even more profoundly, I thought the book was about his creative imagination, but maybe even beyond that, what a creative imagination is by looking at Tolkien's to get a better sense of that. When we say creative imagination, especially for an artist and author like Tolkien, what are we talking about? Oh, that's an interesting question. Um, And that's kind of the mystery of genius. Uh what, What is it? What alchemy is it that happens that allows someone to produce something like the Lord of the Rings, the Hobbit, the, the entire legendarium. 
And Tolkien himself repeatedly describes his sort of creative process in organic terms. He talks about the tree of tales. He talks about the mulch on the, on the floor of the forest. And I think this gives us this picture of his creative imagination as something organic. The, 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 all the different leaves of the trees of tales that he read, you know, ancient, medieval, modern, they fall to the forest floor, they become mulch, and then they're digested. And then they're brought up by the roots. His roots go down really deep. And then they flower into these new stories. Mm -hmm. So in a sense, you know, tracing, you know, what were his, what were sources? How did these sources influence him? You know, there's a, there's a legitimate criticism of source study that kind of says, what's the point? Mm -hmm. You know, okay, so the source, big deal. And that's, that's actually a legitimate criticism because if we just stop there and we say, oh, snurgs are like hobbits. Well, whoop-de-doo. What do we do <laughs> from that? But the really interesting and important thing, I think, is that it helps us to see how did he engage with the source material? How is it that the hobbits partake of the snurgs of E.A. Wick Smith, of Babbitt from Cinco Lewis's Babbitt, of Beatrix Potter's Rabbits, of all these other things? How does he draw from them and bring them together and create something that's new? Yeah. Something that's his own thing. And that process, I just think is fascinating. Right. So Bilbo Baggins isn't just a composite of those three sources, in other words. He, in some ways, like there's inspiration drawn from them. But then the real work of the creative genius of Tolkien is to innovate on that, enrich it in some ways, maybe to improve it or to to bring it into a different kind of mold for this particular world that he's creating in this particular character, right? Like, so the creative imagination isn't just copying, it's imitating in some ways, drawing from, but then adding to or innovating. Absolutely. And I think in a way we can see this best if we consider what happens after Tolkien, hmm. because ironically, I would say that, that the Lord of the Rings had a very negative effect on the development of the modern fantasy genre, hmm. because it's so good right. that every tried to copy it right and you've got all these wretched you know like oh instead of <laughs> instead of you know the fellowship with the hobbits the dwarves and the elves we have the i don't know the companions and their halflings and it's like oh come on <laughs> you know instead of instead of you know mordor it's you know something else uh -huh. it's it's imitative right and it's lame right and, and eventually we do get people writers who have the same creative response to tolkien as Tolkien had to his own sources, but it Tolkien's influence is so strong. We have a lot of just just copying, and it's clumsy. And you know, it's like when you when you photocopy a sheet enough times, it gets all blurry. Right. When we look at what Tolkien's doing with his sources, that's actually where we can see just what a profound writer he was, because everything he touches turns to something else. It turns to gold. It becomes something radically different, yet it still partakes of of what he's drawing on. I mean, for instance, we see this in one source that he himself names very directly. He says that there's a scene in The Hobbit, the warg scene, where the, the, the dwarves and Bilbo are being chased by the wolves, that is influenced by an equivalent scene in E.R. Crockett's book, The Black Douglas. Mm -hmm. And it's very similar. It's, it's, it's clearly... Even the illustration, right? The illustration even resembles what you would picture in your mind when you're reading The Hobbit. Absolutely. Right. And Tolkien himself names this exact scene. So we know that it's a source of a source he was conscious of. Okay, we know that. But what was really interesting was to look carefully at the two scenes and see all the ways that Tolkien improves it. Yes. He heightens the 
drama. He makes the religious element more subtle. He fits it organically into his story. It, he makes it just better in every possible way, yeah. frankly. And, and that was really interesting to see. And then to see the way that he draws on things that you would never even really think of as sources, except, you know, that he names them. Uh-huh. And you think, wow, it all went in yeah. and he does such extremely interesting things with it. Yes. And that's a mark of his sort of creative power. Yeah. This is Leonard DiLorenzo. You're listening to Church Life Today on the Spoke Street Media Network. My guest is Dr. Holly Ordway, the Cardinal Francis George Fellow of Faith and Culture with the Word on Fire Institute, whose new book is Tolkien's Modern Reading, Middle Earth Beyond the Middle Age. You were bringing to our minds just a few moments ago the way in which Tolkien speaks of his own imagination in organic terms. And I want to share with our listeners this quote that you bring forward early in the book. It recurs a few times throughout. I think the imagery that he uses that you bring to our attention is just so powerful and it helps us to see what he's thinking about. He says that relative to the Lord of the Rings, such a story, quote, grows like a seed in the dark out of the leaf mold of the mind. Out of all that has been seen or thought or read, that has long ago been forgotten, descending into the deeps. Now, you started us off by saying that, you know, one of the sort of errant opinions about Tolkien is that he was just hopelessly stuck in the past, was not engaging with the modern world. That's one bias that needs to be sort of challenged and reset. But another is that Tolkien really didn't have any influences. <laughs> like he was a man without influence. Everything for him as a sub-creator, one who creates visions of entire worlds that are coherent, it's almost like it's coming out of nothing. He's a creator out of nothing. But out of what he's saying here and really the fruit of your own work and other scholarship is to show, no, he is influenced. It's not direct imitation. I wonder if you have, an, if you have thoughts on why so many of us would want to consider Tolkien to be a man without influence. Is, are we trying to guard some kind of idea of what genius is? Are we protecting or propagating a view of him that we have an investment in? I, I guess I'm asking you to sort of postulate a little here. What do you think about that? Well, that's that's a great question. And I think it has to do with what we think creativity is and what makes it valuable. I think there's a, a definite emphasis on a sort of pure originality that somehow if it's purely original, whatever that means, and that's an extremely complicated question, what does it mean to be original? Mm-hmm. That somehow that's better and that when we're drawing on sources or influences that somehow it's lesser. And I think there's a real sense almost of like disappointment that to think that if if Tolkien drew on other sources for the hobbits, are the hobbits somehow less interesting or less important or less meaningful? And I think in a sense, it's actually interesting because it's Tolkien's medieval background that 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 will actually help us to challenge that Hmm. because this idea of of creativity, of putting originality, like pure originality as a a criteria of value is extraordinarily modern. I mean, medieval writers didn't think that was important at all. They, you know, this thing about the legends of King Arthur, there's so many different versions of King Arthur and Tolkien himself does a version of King Arthur, which he didn't finish, of course. Right, right. (laughs) So this idea of creativity having its value only in originality is, is really a modern disease. And I think that's a place where Tolkien as a medievalist can speak to the modern day because he, he's in a sense, applying a more medieval approach to creativity 
to the way that he takes in modern sources, this is really so Tolkienian in its sort of breadth of, of engagements over the eons. Because there's no reason why we should think that something is better simply because it has no connection to anything else. Right. <laughs> Which is probably a myth in and of itself that even when you don't think something has a connection to anything else, that thought was proposed to you decades ago and it's just been sitting there, like he says, under the leaf mold out of things that you've forgotten and they arise again. Anybody probably who has taken class notes and gone back to them, you know, 15 years later, you're like, oh my goodness, that thing that I thought I thought of, I actually heard. Or anybody who journals finds that they journal about the same thing four years later that they journaled about previously, the idea has been sort of marinating. So that makes intuitive sense to me. And I appreciate the way that you put that. I, In thinking about the people that he read and the different sources that he consulted, medieval and modern, one of the things that I found striking, I guess it's not surprising except that I had to be shown it by you, is that his standard for reading something or reading someone was not that this author or this work strictly aligned with his own worldview. In other words, he would read things from people who almost abided in a different moral universe. And in fact, he often appreciated those things, maybe even more than authors whom we might think would have a greater philosophical similarity to Tolkien or might share more of his beliefs, especially as a Catholic. How can we think about that? How did you find that his standard for whether something was worth engaging with extensively or not? Well, this is something that was, for me, a surprise mm -hmm. and, and truly fascinating because I would have, again, assumed that he would gravitate towards people who shared, you know, at least the fundamental assumptions of his of Christianity or even theism, and he doesn't. I mean, he's he praises the work of E.R. Edison um, while also calling out Edison's philosophy as evil. Mm. He just straight up evil. Edison was a was a pantheist. Um, he had you know extraordinarily different views than Tolkien. Tolkien enjoyed writer Haggard, who was into reincarnation, um, spiritualism. Uh, he he took seriously James Joyce um, and Gertrude Stein, the modernists. I mean, there's a whole slew of people that he takes seriously as writers, or even admires as writers. And then, as you say, there are writers that that are his co-religionists, whom he doesn't necessarily think all that much of. I mean, for instance, he didn't care for the Father Brown stories of G.K. Chesterton, and you would think that. Of course he would. Well, he liked other things of Chesterton's, but he didn't. He didn't like those. Mm. So there's a there's a definite, you know, diversity there. I think in a way it comes back to the fact that Tolkien was such a devout Catholic, because he had a confidence in his faith. It wasn't ostentatious, but it was solid. And we should remember, you know, that he, although we might call him a lifelong Catholic, he was a convert because he, when when his mother was received into the church, he was old enough that he was received as, as an adult. He was considered to be past the age of reason. So it was his own conversion. He wasn't kind of subsumed with his with his mother's. And he continues to, to be a Catholic his in, entire life. And I think it's this sort of grounding in his faith that allows him to read people who disagree with him without being defensive. Mm. Like, okay, he thinks Edison's philosophy is completely wrong. Well, that doesn't shake his own confidence in the truth of his philosophy. So it frees him to admire the literary craft that Edison is, is doing. And I think there's a really important lesson for us now, because I think in the modern day, Christians can be really defensive 
about reading other authors who differ from them. Yes. Almost as if we, we might, you know, catch a, catch a moral disease from, <laughs> right. from reading something. That, right. <laughs> that, you know. And Tolkien is just so refreshingly kind of healthy minded. You know, he just, he admires what's to be admired and speaks forthrightly about where is an error. He's able to distinguish literary merit from philosophical claims. And I think this is just a really healthy state of mind that we really do well to emulate. Yes. This is Leonard DiLorenzo. You're listening to Church Life Today on the Spoke Street Media Network. My guest is Dr. Holly Ordway. We're discussing her new book, Tolkien's Modern Reading, Middle Earth Beyond the Middle Age. So you brought up Tolkien's lifelong Catholicism or the fact that he converted when he was quite young and his continued engagement with his faith. I think many people would be quite prompt to claim Tolkien as a Catholic writer. And so when you would turn to especially the Lord of the Rings, you'd be on the lookout for Catholic elements. And this means that and that means this. How did Tolkien himself consider religious elements in literature, their proper place, their proper presentation. Maybe that's a question about what he valued in what other people did and what he didn't, and then maybe what that means for especially the Lord of the Rings. Well, that's that's an enormously complex question because Tolkien himself says some complicated things. Yes. For instance, he, he says about the Lord of the Rings that it's a fundamentally religious and Catholic work unconsciously in the writing and consciously in the revision. Right. And that gets quoted a lot. But then he goes on to say, and that's why I cut out all the religious There's bits. no religion in it, right? It's yes, a religious word. Yeah. He, link, he links, he says, it's fundamentally religious and that's why I cut out all the explicit religion. Right. Wait, what? What? Yeah. <laughs> and it's because it's subsumed. He says it's in the story. It's in the, it's in the imagery. It's in the symbolism. Um, it's imbued in it at a, at a very deep level. So it's not something that you can just do a straight allegorical read of. There are certainly lots of resonances, and there are ones that Tolkien was certainly amenable to, but it's it cannot be read as a simple kind of gospel allegory. And this is a serious fault with a lot of Christian commentators on The Lord of the Rings. They really, really want to make it into a gospel tract, and it's just not. <laughs> right, right, <laughs> not. right. And it's interesting, you know, one of the things that, that I think helped my own understanding of this was looking at his fellow inklings and seeing the way that he responds to them, because there are certain books of, of Lewis's that he doesn't care for, and there's others that he that he does. Mm. And it's interesting that he really admired Lewis's Ransom trilogy. Right. Out of the Silent Planet, he thought it was fantastic. He loved Paralandra. He had some issues with that, with that hideous strength. Right. But it's interesting to note because there, you know, Lewis is doing kind of almost the same thing. He's putting his Christianity into the imagined world. You know, we have the Eldila that are angels and, and, and whatnot. And Tolkien is, is liking this. He's not so keen on Charles Williams's spiritual thrillers. In fact, he, he dislikes them intensely. Mm. And it's interesting to try to tease out, as I, as I tried to do in my book, what might he have objected to? And of course, one has to extract this from, from, from the analysis. But I, I think that Williams is maybe a bit too overt. He, he kind of shoves it in your face. And in a way, it becomes less effective, mm. I think. Mm. And I certainly think that Tolkien felt that. I think that Tolkien was of the view that at least for him as a writer, the implicit, the subtle, the sort of 
imbued approach was what he wanted to do, which isn't to say that the other approaches aren't any good, but that's what he was doing. And so we need to read it that way. And I think you brought up a a couple of times Tolkien's view of the Chronicles of Narnia and especially at the the start of the Chronicles and probably the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, which might have been, in his view, a little heavy-handed in its Christian elements. It's a little bit too direct. But then over time, you know, in his later comments on the Chronicles, he says, what, they're deservedly very popular. He grew an appreciation of them. And maybe that's an indication either of his shifting view on Lewis's work or also— perhaps a shift in Lewis's own approach to the Chronicles, that by the Voyage of the Dawn Treader, he's doing probably a little bit more direct mythology and a little bit less things that seem to be allegorical. Does that seem about right with Tolkien's view? You know, it does. And partly this has to do with the fact that Tolkien's alleged dislike of Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe has been has been inflated. Right. And that's something I, I part very carefully. And he speaks he hyperbolically not- himself, Tolkien. This is a characteristic <laughs> mark of him, right? Yes. Yes, he does. He does. It's just the way he it's the way he communicates. Right. And he did say a few hyperbolic things about Narnia, but you can't just take them out as assessments on face value. Yes. And even when he makes these remarks, they're not anything as harsh as his biographer Humphrey Carpenter makes them out to be. And the later biographers have tended simply to pick up Carpenter and even enhance it. So it's like the game of telephone. Over time, you've gone from, you know, his some hyperbolic remarks to Tolkien hated everything about Narnia <laughs> and destroyed his friendship with Lewis. Right. You know, that's total right. rubbish. Right. <laughs> it's like a Twitter imagination before Twitter, the way in which people have taken his, his little statements as these hot takes that are definitive. Right. So absolutely. Yeah. Humphrey Carpenter, by the way, is not the hero of your tale. <laughs> we can tell. No, no. And it's interesting, you know, Carpenter ends up, he doesn't come off terribly well in, mm-hmm. in my book, but I want to, I want to say like, I did not start out writing this with any intention of criticizing Carpenter because right. he's the autobiographer. And I went into my research, assuming that everything he said was completely reliable. And it was only after I got, you know, about six years into the research and I, I finally realized that, you know, Carpenter says he read very little modern fiction and took no serious notice of it. Well, that's not true. Right. So what's going on? Right. And it led me to start looking a little more carefully at what Carpenter was doing. Where was he editorializing? And it led me to look at what Carpenter himself had said about his writing of the biography. And Carpenter is extraordinarily straightforward mm. in saying that he wasn't even trying to be objective. Right. And, and it's just, it was shocking to me. It was a complete <laughs> surprise. And so I put that in. I allowed, in a sense, Carpenter to, you know, give his own perspective right. and show the ways that we can't rely on his judgment about these things. Because there's been so much reliance on this one biography, and I did before I started this research, and it puts us on the wrong track Mm -hmm. in so many ways. So I just want us to sort of look at that again. Yes. I want to turn back to the Catholic elements of Tolkien's work, his own you could say Catholic imagination, his his standing as a Catholic who has this creative imagination. And it's impossible and it would be a disservice to say the Lord of the Rings is about this because that's a way to do violence to the story and say it's about this. But I think, you know, as you so helpfully show what those of us who have spent time with the Lord of the Rings would know, but maybe not name, 
this tale is very deeply about pity and it's very deeply about power. How do we see those come through Tolkien's imagination, perhaps especially as a Catholic, the centrality of pity and what is at play relative to power in the legendarium? Oh, golly, that's that's quite a big question. I know, Maybe I, I like asking big ones sometimes. <laughs> well, I think this this gets to what I think is sort of the more authentically Catholic take on the Lord of the Rings, which is to say, how is he approaching this from a point of view that is deeply committed to you know the sacrifice of Christ on the cross, deeply committed to the sacrament of reconciliation, that takes sin seriously, that takes the quest for personal holiness seriously, that takes the role of Mary in our prayer life and our, our, our spiritual life seriously. Those are the kinds of things that I think allow us to look at what Tolkien is doing, for instance, with the theme of pity, and understand it from a Catholic perspective in a way that I think is much more in line with his own approach than just to say, oh, where are the Marian figures and where's the Christ figure? Right. That's not how his imagination works. Right. But to look at the the sort of undercurrents, you know, this the whole centrality of of mercy in the Lord of the Rings, the fact that you know Frodo fails in his quest, which <laughs> Tolkien noted that almost nobody notices that and it annoyed him. <laughs> right. Frodo didn't do it. He claimed the ring in the end. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that's really significant, but he does it because he had been faithful to his task and it had broken his will. Yeah. So he, he had gone to the point of, of being broken. He was helpless, but then it's providentially, and this is Tolkien with a very Catholic capital mm. P providential. It's because of his previous mercy to Gollum that it all comes right. Yes. I think that's a deeply Catholic conclusion in a, in a way that honors kind of the approach that Tolkien takes to it. You know, it, the first time I read The Lord of the Rings, I was almost dissatisfied when I got to that point. Like you're with Frodo the whole time. You're waiting. You sort of expect this, right? Like you're waiting for him to complete the task at great co personal cost to himself. And he can't assume the final cost. He's gotten it's it's just painful to be there because he's done all of he's gotten right to the precipice, like he's right on the last step, and he doesn't do it. He claims it, but I love what you're bringing out there. It is it's still actually in some ways Frodo's work that did complete it because it's the pity he showed exhibited previously to stay his hand against slaying Gollum that through the working of providence actually brings the the quest to completion in a way that we wouldn't have been able to expect. Yeah. And also the fact that he, he is at the precipice. He's there. He has, he has gone beyond the point of his own ability. He hasn't just gone up to his mm. limit. He has gone past his limit. Mm. He has allowed the ring to break him. He, he couldn't, he, he wasn't, he wasn't strong enough. Um, and this is of course, you know, this is us without grace, right? Yes. Um, so that again is his contribution. This is him cooperating with his own salvation. So you know, to paraphrase Saint Paul, because he puts himself in the place where he can be broken. He is the one who goes there and keeps going there and doesn't turn back. And it breaks him. It breaks his will. And then providence comes in. Hmm. That is fascinating. And I, I think even here, maybe we'll come to an end here. Thinking about the presence or figure of Christ in the Lord of the Rings, we. Maybe at a at a first and more superficial reading, we're trying to find the Christ figure, but Tolkien won't let us settle. 
right? So Frodo's the one who carries the burden, but he carries it certainly with Sam. And you say, well, Sam's maybe the Simon of Cyrene, but then the failure of Frodo kind of thwarts our attempts to make him into the Christ figure. You have Aragorn, who is the king, clearly, and whose own kingship is verified by his healing power. That's how his kingship is ultimately revealed. And yet he's not the one who carries the burden. You'd like to, to be Gandalf because he's the most powerful and the wisest and sees the most, but he doesn't carry the burden. So I think that, that you know, as I'm hearing you talk about this, it seems to, to provide evidence to the point that we were making earlier about how Tolkien doesn't force in the religious elements, but allows the entire story to be kind of cased in this religious imagination. And then within this sort of world, the presence of Christ is more assumed by several rather than located just in one place. I think so. And also we, we should remember that, you know, Tolkien was deeply steeped in, you know, the entire body of the scriptures. Mm. And so, you know, I think this is a very much an old, you know, Old Testament to New Testament thing. You know, we've got all these types of Christ in the Old Testament. So, you know, Jacob is a type of Christ, yes. but he's, you know, not perfect. You have all of these. <laughs> None of them are in the Old Yes, right. Exactly. And so I think if you look at it that way, we, we have to remember when we talk about Tolkien as a Catholic, he's not just, you know, reading the New Testament. Mm. He is deeply engaged with the whole of the scriptures as a very, a very literate man, as well as a, as a devout Catholic. So I think in that we might almost, you know, look at it in a more typological sense that here we have Tolkien, again, drawing on a much deeper and richer literary and theological tradition to carry forward what he's what he's doing. It's not so simple as just saying, here's the Christ figure. Right. Friends, today we've been talking about Tolkien's modern reading, Middle Earth Beyond the Middle Age. The author, Dr. Holly Ordway, has been my guest today. Dr. Ordway, thank you so, so much for sharing this time with us. Oh, well, it's been a great pleasure. And thanks to all of you for joining us on Church Life Today. Church Life Today is a production of Spoke Street Media and the McGrath Institute for Church Life at the University of Notre Dame and is brought to you in part by Notre Dame FCU and our listeners. Elevate 150 Financial Checkups at Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Here's how it works. Go online and schedule a 30-minute phone call. They'll guide you through your credit report to find ways to improve your financial health. Then they'll send $150 in your name to Redeemer Radio. For information, visit NotreDameFCU.com slash elevate. You already share our values. Why not share in our benefits? Notre Dame FCU.